0: Welcome to the IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization with a mission to improve the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people living with primary immunodeficiency. Due to the nature of rare diseases, there's so much uncertainty surrounding not only PI, but also its effects on other organ systems within the body. On a recent webinar, Dr. Stacy Clardy of the University of Utah delivered a message about PI from a unique perspective, that of a neurologist. In fact, Dr. Clardy published one of the first studies of its kind on the matter in early 2023, which was funded by a grant from IDF. On this episode, Dr. Clardy answers questions from the PI community about her observations. Let's get started.
1: Again, my name is Emma Martins and I'm the Program Manager of Community Health at IDF. And leading us through the Q&A, we have Dr. Stacy Clardy from University of Utah. Um, a friendly reminder that if you would like to ask anything during the Q&A, to please enter your questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom screen. All right, so Dr. Clardy had great timing and we have just under an hour for Q&A, so we're gonna get through as many questions as we can. Um, and we're gonna just go in order. So. First question for Dr. Clardy. Um, This individual asks, do you know of any correlation between Parkinson's disease and my CVID diagnosis?
2: Yeah, I don't, but you know, this question, yeah, I don't think we're there yet. My hope is with all of the accessibility to the genetic testing, right? We know there's a handful of genes that have been identified, some, some here at the University of Utah by Harry Hill that, that are the underpinnings for, for CVID, but we've got a long way to go. And so um, to get to a correlation like between Parkinson's and CVID, you know, a, a rare immunologic condition, somewhat rare, not so much, it's increasing in, 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 in frequency diagnosis of Parkinson's. I, I don't think we're there yet. I, and I don't know the answer, but those are the exact questions that I ask, right? Um, and I do think probably as the genetics moves along, we'll get closer to understanding some of that when you get a cohort of, just like they've been doing with the CTLA-4 patients. When, they, when, when you get the researchers interested in that particular mutation and they start building the cohort with that mutation, they can then say, oh my goodness, and look, so many of these patients have had really abnormal MRIs of the brain. Isn't that unusual, right? That's where that answer is going to come from and we're not there yet. So I don't know.
1: Thank you, Dr. Clardy. Apologies if you can hear the thunder in the background. It just started storming here. So sorry, everyone. Um, All right. Next question. Um, We have a few folks asking about autonomic deficits and peripheral neuropathy. And is that common in people's CVID? In,
2: In my experience, my single center experience, yes. Um, and, and the question is, you know, what's driving it, but, you know, in, in neurology, we divide the nervous system into three main components. Central nervous system is your brain and spinal cord. Um, peripheral nervous system is, is the nerves from the spinal cord out to the tips of your fingers and tips of your toes. And then the autonomic nervous system, or, or what I like to joke and call it is the automatic nervous system is the one that innervates the gut, that does things that should happen automatically that we shouldn't have to think about. So prevents you from getting dizzy when you stand up because it tells your heart, ooh, pump harder, faster, because we need to go further uphill. Um, and if it doesn't work, you get dizzy and you get presyncope when you stand up. Um, when you're outside working out, it says, oh, like push some hydration to the skin so this person can sweat so that they cannot overheat. And so likewise, if it fails you there, then all of a sudden you're passing out, you're having heat exhaustion with minimal exertion. Um, Pupil size is another one. So photophobia, if the uh, autonomic nervous system, when you walk outside does not immediately constrict your pupils, you get photophobia, which is really painful exposure to bright lights because your pupils are not constricting appropriately to limit amount of light going into the nerves. Um, So things like that are the autonomic nervous system. And yes, um, you know at this stage, again, with where we are in our understanding, I can say that I see a lot of autonomic uh, nervous system involvement in CBID patients. We're fortunate here to have an autonomic testing lab in our neurology clinic. So um, does that bias it and make it more apparent to us? Perhaps, um, but certainly it's there. Um, Peripheral nervous system, likewise, so many causes it, it, excluding CBID of peripheral neuropathy. Um, and so there's many um, pathways for a CBID patient to get to peripheral neuropathy. Peripheral neuropathy is divided into sort of axonal, demyelinating, large fiber, small fiber, right? Small fiber is the painful one where you can't, it feels like it's burning in your skin. You can't stand to have the sheets over your feet. Large fiber is where you don't really know where your feet are. So you're tripping a little bit, you get numbness. You know, if you're in the shower, um, you you kind of maybe lose your balance. So, so many ways for CBID patients to get there. Let me give you one example, like um, malabsorption related to the CBID sort of enteropathy can cause low B12, which can give you a large fiber neuropathy. So that's like low-hanging fruit. When I sort of suspect that I'm always checking the micronutrients in the CBID patients. Um, common things being common, if you have diabetes, a hemoglobin A1c above 5.8 is enough to get you started on a peripheral neuropathy. So there it could be, this is just a common thing and you have CBID, right? So many pathways, but um, I will say, yeah, I, when I ask, it seems to be there when I see the CBID patients and it'd be tough, be tough to say, but again, I feel my sense is it's a bit more and in some other patients, we'd see, but our numbers, we don't have them yet. Thank you, Dr.
1: Clardy. All right, this next question: How do you prevent acute disseminated encephalomyelitis in a PI patient after a viral infection?
2: Oh, that's...
3: <laughs> yeah. <A tough> one.
2: <laughs> if I only had my crystal ball, um, so I, I think the. So ADEM, as we call acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, um, the way to prevent it in in someone with, and I say dysfunctional immune system, this is the language I use when talking to my colleagues, is to prevent the infection whenever possible, obviously, right? Um, You might be aware that one of the ways we treat ADEM uh, is steroids, but also uh, IVIG. (laughs) So... so, um, (laughs) At least on the bright side, it's easier to get IVIG approved in the CBID population we can't get it for our other patients. Um, so it's hard to know. I will tell you, um, in, in the neurology world, um, the, how we look at ADEM is, is changing quickly. Um, and, and the biggest reason for that is um, a, an autoimmune condition driven by an antibody, and the condition is called MOGAD. And the antibody is MOG, M O G. Uh, and that stands for myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, and these are autoantibodies, so pathologic antibodies. Normal people should not have them. And what we have found, especially in the pediatric population, when you look at the old historic ADEM cohorts, and they have saved samples on a lot of them. Um, This is work done by Brenda Banwell out of CHOP, Children's Hospital Philadelphia. When you look at her old saved samples, she went back and analyzed them, about half of the children had MOG antibodies. And so we are now reclassifying that into MOG-associated disease, MOGAD, um, and appreciating that ADAM, which is sort of a a really serious central nervous system condition where we see a lot of sort of fluffy white lesions in the brain that eventually tend to heal and heal quite well in many cases. is, is sort of related to, to these MOG antibodies. And so um, knowing that we test um, and everyone, this, this the word is getting out among neurologists faster than the CVID word is getting out. We need to test immediately for those MOG antibodies There's a readily available test at the major four laboratories in, in the US um, and worldwide. Um, and if you see that, you would tr- approach ADEM slightly differently. Um, but still this MOGAD can be caused just like traditional ADEM by... Uh, a viral um, infection triggering a primed immune system. Some cases, no, some cases, it may just be the immune system itself, but in many cases, especially pediatrics, it's a viral. So the best way is to prevent the infections. But um, I would say, you know, one thing that the immunologist taught me here um, is is really, and hopefully you all do this, is to have your most recent notes from your specialists that you trust printed out. Um, And so um, as people are beginning to travel again, I was just talking to one of our CVID patients this week, who's gonna go on a trip and I'm very excited for them. And I said, okay, great. You have your passport, right? And I said, yeah. I was like, okay, attach to your passport. And I don't care if you have to staple it on there. If you ever use your passport, I want your notes. I want the last note from me, the last note from your immunologist, the last note from your pulmonologist, They go with you, right? That is your passport and you view it that way. Those are your travel papers. And so at least if there is something that happens because life happens, infections happen. um, If you're in an urgent care, if you're in an ER, you're not reinventing the story and you immediately get what you need. Do you need extra immune globulin? Do you need um, corticosteroid on top of that? What do you need? You can get it promptly um, because that's certainly another huge problem you know, our rare disease patients having both neurology and with CVID is, is getting the antibiotic, right? So we even have cards where I basically say, this is like your, give me an antibiotic card. It has my name, my pager. Um, like you go to an urgent care. I don't want the talk about, oh, it's probably viral. Come back in 10 days. Like, no, you get the antibiotic, right? So we have little cards printed up for our patients here. And, and I think um, that's a, that's a, at least helpful thing to do if we can't prevent you getting ADEMS. Um, If it's from a viral infection, we can at least treat it
3: quickly and speed up
1: recovery. That is awesome advice for our patient community, so thank you. All right, next question. All right, I'm going to kind of merge two of them. Um, This individual wants to know, where is the CVID clinic you mentioned, and do you see other PI
2: diagnoses at that clinic? Um, so it's not my clinic. Um I'm just lucky to collaborate with them. Um so it it's um so I will tell you, I mentioned Harry Hill and, and and Adi Gundalapali, who are also authors on that paper. Harry Hill has since stepped back clinically retired. He's <laughs> he's stuck with it for a while, <laughs> but uh, but he's in well-earned retirement. Um, Adi Gundalapali actually moved to CDC. Um, about three or four years ago, and I don't think he's actually been able to see patients because his workload is so tremendous with the work that he's doing at a, at a higher level. Um, at the University of Utah, that clinic we are fortunate to have had it taken over by a medped doc, which I adore um, because um, pediatric immune systems are quite complex and a little above my head too. So she sees adults and children. Her name is Dr. Adrienne Carey uh, here at the University of Utah, and she's um, phenomenal. Um, and she also has some other colleagues. We do, I think, um, I go to her, right, because I can only remember so many names. And, and I know that she has a special interest in CBID. Um, but we also have a dedicated pediatric immunologist for the Children's Hospital. Um, and then we have a few other um, uh, clinicians um, sort of in different departments, right? Like I think Adrian Carey is infectious disease. We have an allergist immunologist, right? So I basically have a list of these names and depending on insurance constraints, geographic location, when we see people at University of Utah, that determines um, who they go to. Um, but yeah, they I, I don't know if it's uh, so named. The CVID clinic, like, like Adi had really sort of um, categorized this population that we did, but the patients are st- still certainly here. Um, and now we just query, we do a medical record query to see how many people are in the cohort. Um, and there's a shared philosophy with how to treat all of the patients uh, among the immunologists and the infectious disease docs.
1: Thank you. All right, next question. How do you differentiate POTS and CVID slash autoimmune and neuroissues?
2: Yeah. So this is where we're very fortunate to have the autonomic neurology um, testing lab in the neurology clinic, right? It, we're very fortunate. There are not many of them in the country that is run um, by Melissa Cortez. She's a neurologist um, and she has subsequently built it up. So several other neurologists have joined um, and and these are neurologists um, who have done, there's actually um, I, a very rare um, fellowship that's available at a few places in the country that you can do called autonomic neurology. Um, the University of Utah is actually starting their own because we've assembled such a cohort of these experts now. Um, so they are neurologists with a special interest in the autonomic nervous system and an ability to use the lab to query objective data. So that lab sorts out dysautonomia from POTS, um, can detect small fiber neuropathies versus large fiber neuropathies they can do um cardiac sort of um responsiveness testing um of somatosensory sort of evoked potential you know it's it's it gets a little above my head because again i didn't do that fellowship but i have friends who are smart um and they're just down the hall in clinic and so when these symptoms come up when i start to query i i basically ask the five questions i kind of sort of alluded to earlier like things getting out to you sweat normally can you stand up without getting dizzy do your pupils constrict? Um, does your gut move? This gets more complicated in CBID. Um, for patients without CBID, um, it's a more straightforward question. Um and um, which other one? Oh, bowel and bladder, bowel, bladder, and erectile dysfunction and the other big ones. Um, so if, if patients screen positive on most of those, I send them to get the objective data. Um, and also those autonomic docs, um, can do the symptomatic management, the counseling, There are specific medications, um, they prescribe, you're probably familiar with, you know, like, uh, F um, and, and some others, they get very creative, um, in managing those symptoms once they've sorted out POTS from um, sort of more general dysautonomia and depending on what symptoms are most problematic. Um, So the short answer is I don't have to do it. I just have to get a gestalt and then (laughs) um, my other neurology colleagues help. It's it's data is the bottom line. You need data um, and often
3: like a tilt table to sort, sort it out.
1: You. All right. This individual asks, "When do you know if a symptom is related to your CVID or something else, and when do you go and get evaluated?"
2: Well, that's the million-dollar question. Does anybody on here know the answer? Because I would like to know. <laughs> um, right? This is so tricky um, because the first thing that comes to mind, right, is is this an infection, right? Um, and and I think most CVID patients are pretty good at sorting that out. Uh, you know, am I getting a fever, or is it a cellulitis, or is it the sinuses again? Am I coffee? You know, um, but then beyond that, this is where I think just assembling a thoughtful team of clinicians is tremendously helpful so that you can go and and, and, and docs don't have to know about all these rare diseases, right? They just have to be willing to, to investigate and to think, you know, so when you come in and say, I carry a diagnosis of CVID, that means my immune system does not, Fight off infection when it should, but it also means that it can attack inappropriately. And my question today is: I have this symptom, you know, and and you describe it to them. It started at X time. This is what's going on. Do you think it could be related, right? And that that you, know, when you frame it that way. What you need is a doc who just says, "Well, I don't know. That's not my organ system." You don't want that, right? You want a doc who goes, "Well, I don't know, but that's a good question." right? And we'll work with you depending on what it is to figure it out. Because that is the thing, right? We go back and forth. It is, there's such a danger in medicine, of what we call diagnostically anchoring. So what you don't want is a doc who blames everything on your CBID, right? Oh, that's just your CBID. That's just your CBID, right? No, because you can get a rare disease and you can get the common ones too, right? (laughs) Um, And sort of vice versa, you don't want um, a doc who says, oh, this is just a Straightforward classic X, and and doesn't consider like could that could that happen in this context of CVID, and could there be something different about it that we need to consider, right? And this is a hard thing for docs. This is a hard thing when you've got um, time constraints around your appointments. You know when you're coming from a room where somebody just had to admit to the hospital. You have to to so, you know this is the tough part, and this is where it helps have your advocate with you, right? Someone in the room who you, you know, if if you don't feel like you're being heard, they'll step in and say, well, here's what I'm worried about. You know, this is where it helps to have a list. Um, I think even for the simplest problems, right? Whenever I go with any family member to any appointment, I don't care if it's just for a cold, right? I have a list, right? To stay on task and let the, I let the doc know, I have three things, three questions for you today. And I don't wait until the end of the visit, right? Um, so, so that's where those tools help. And you'll very quickly figure out if you have the right team. Um, that is probably the hardest part, right? Is building your team where you feel comfortable. Um, you know, you need to have the specialists. They're tough. The specialists are tough. I'm talking about myself. There's some self-loathing here because they never have the appointments. Right. So I only get to see my patients sometimes twice a year. Um, and so we have a pathway with nurses and everything. So the nurses know to flag when I need to be contacted and, but you also need that primary care physician who you can hopefully get in with more often, and so you need all those components to the team and, and we're working in a very broken healthcare system I don't think anyone would say our healthcare systems not broken so. Looking at it this way and approaching it strategically, I know it takes sometimes a couple of years to build the team. Um, but. That's what you have to do to answer that question. You need the team who's going to help you think about it. So what I will say sometimes to a newly diagnosed patient, when they say, well, how do I know if this is a relapse? How do I know if this is neurologic? Is I say, well, you're going to learn after about a year, you'll be the expert on you. Um, but for now, if you're not, if you're not sure, just you call us and, and we'll tell you yay or nay, you need to go get this test, you know, or you can sit and wait this out, right? The, you know, let, let's figure it out that way. Um, But then it sure enough, always, even in a neurology clinic, which is always scary um, for most patients, if they've had a a significant neurologic symptom after a year, the patient's the expert and they'll write and say, Hey, um, this is going on. And I write back and I say like, Hey, has that ever happened before? Is that like a pseudo relapse? Is your eye acting up because you got stressed out? And they will be like, yeah, I'm like, okay, well, you can maybe wait a couple of days versus has that ever happened before? And they're like, no, I've never had my vision affected. I'm like, all right, let's get you in for that urgent eye appointment you know, the patients always know, um, but there is anxiety, I think, until you learn that new aspect of, of, of maybe your symptoms or organ involvement. So
3: um, that's how I approach it.
1: Thank you. All right, this individual asks, in your experience, do the neurological symptoms associated with CVID progress over time, or are there flares?
2: Not an immunologist, full disclaimer. (laughs) Um I think a lot of what we captured for neurologic symptoms, uh, you know, CTLA4 and those kind of MOGAD aside, um, the the majority were symptoms, I think. And they were symptoms of an inflammatory dysregulated immune system, right? If your immune system is inflamed, if you're getting frequent infections. It's a setup to get more often headaches, right? So, you know, migraines in general are a super common thing amongst all humans, right? It's probably 20% of people don't get out of this life without having experienced headaches over at some point, not their whole lives, but, you know, maybe an epic of life. So, what we do see though is if you are inflamed, yeah, you're going to get headaches more often and they're going to be worse, right? And so, that I think. Just like, and if you're you're inflamed, fatigue, which, you know, fatigue, I think we need to clearly define that means you could have gotten a great night of sleep, solid 10 hours, and you're still cooked by like 1 p.m., right? Just done. Um, That's fatigue, right? It's not tired, it is um, whole body exhaustion and sort of um, that's inflammatory, right? Across the board of my neurology clinic, CBID aside, all of the autoimmune conditions have fatigue in the vast majority of people affected. Um, so so I think many of those neurologic signs are what we call secondary neurologic symptoms, meaning they are driven by the underlying process. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be treating them, right? in neurology, you have expertise in treating them. Um, but you know, one of the first things we do when you come to neurologists is we try and sort out, is this a primary neurologic symptom, like an you know, a, an undiagnosed, clean, neurologic diagnosis, like multiple sclerosis or something like that, or is this secondary? And that's when I'm looking over your, your past medical history going, oh my goodness, you know, you have CBID. Well, goodness, like, is that under control? Because if that's not under control, that's probably driving these things, right? Um, so, you know, like in neurology, we diagnose sleep apnea, like all the time, If <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I think we're pretty darn good at doing it without a sleep study, but we always get that to confirm because patients come in. And they'll say, oh, I have a headache every single day. And then we say, well, do you go to bed with a headache? And they're like, no, some nights I go to bed and I don't have a headache. Do you wake up with one? Yes. If you wake up with a headache and you didn't go to bed without one, you're not oxygenating well at night. Another thing to really think about if you have CVID um, lung disease, are you oxygenating well at night? And and you might not be snoring you might just not be oxygenating, right? So so we do a lot of diagnosing of that just by asking questions about your neurologic symptoms, even if they're secondary. So I think a lot of them are aggravated when you are flaring per se. I think CBID comes in waves and certainly an infection gets the immune system all riled up while you're recovering and all of that. And, And then if you have superimposed autoimmunity that can have its own sort of separate cycle of flares, right? And I didn't say this anywhere in the talk, but it made me think of it with that question. Emotional stress is one of the biggest triggers in my experience for the immune system to misbehave, right? So I will often say, and and patients will agree with me, I think you're going to be okay from the cold. I do. I think you're going to rest, you're going to have tea, you're going to do all the things we do, but I do not want you getting stressed out. So if there are mean people in your life, I want them out, right? Like, you know, and I even say like, Around the holidays, you don't want to go see that dysfunctional family member. Blame it on me because you will flare up. So don't do it. Emotional stress, we have no good understanding. But universally, it flares up our patients. I have had patients go into a flare at a funeral, right? Sort of, this is a real thing. And this is where self-care isn't just talk about self-care. Like, this is crucial um, for when you have a dysregulated immune system. You have to get the toxic emotional stuff minimized as much as humanly possible.
3: Thank you so much.
1: All right, next question. Have you found that treating CVID results in a reduction in neurological symptoms?
2: Um, some of the things that I just talked about, maybe, right? Like if 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 the CVID, you get that under better control with your immunologist, you get the ideal dosing of, of the IGs and then you're getting fewer infections. Um, yeah, then sometimes it, it's, it's a great way to calm down some of the neuro stuff. Um, other times, um, no, it's really two separate arms, if you will, of the immune system. So the case I gave you of the gentleman who ultimately had CVID associated granulomatous disease, um, we treated the immunodeficiency, um, and, and I didn't really delve into it, but if you're a really fast reader on that timeline, you will see that he, um, I was working with his, obviously with all his docs. So he had a dermatologist, pulmonologist, rheumatologist, uh, uh, neuro-ophthalmologist, um, he had a bunch of docs. And um, he, I was talking to the pulmonologist. They said, you know what? The the, the miss lung disease is getting worse. And I said, okay. Um, and, and so we thought, well, we can't let this go unchecked. So we should probably treat that. And the treatment for that is to suppress the immune system. Right. And while we were fighting the insurance company, and we were outright fighting them in his case to get infliximab Remicade is the brand name at a TNF alpha approved, which is something we sometimes use for the granulomas portion. He had an attack on his eye. Um, and, and that's when I really went um, and I, I told the insurance company that I would, that I would readily throw them under the bus. And this was completely their fault because his autoimmunity was getting out of control as they were stalling. And, and so, um, we were able to then very quickly get, um, the infliximab approved, but then, then we're walking a very fine line, right. Um, suppressing the immune system of someone who has this immune system. Right. So it took a little bit, the immunologist was in there sort of titrating to make sure the IGs were okay. Um, And that's obviously not, immunoglobulins are not, dysregulated or low immunoglobulins are not the only piece that protects you from infection. Um, So for periods of time, we did put him on prophylactic antibiotics, depending on risks environmentally with his job and things um, while suppressing. So in that case, his neurologic, and, and by neurologic in his case, I mean the optic neuropathy did not calm down until we suppressed the immune system as well. But every CVID patient, because CVID is the end result of so many different possible genetic polymorphisms and ways to get there. Every patient has to be treated individually. So for some, just getting those immunoglobulins dialed in and reducing infections, great, cuts down on all of the secondary neurologic symptoms. Um, For others, it's a situation like his where no, we have to really get creative with um, immunomodulation. Um, But the other thing is too, like the headaches in the CVID patients, we've got a great armamentarium of headache treatments. Um, They work for the CVID patients too. We just have to get them to you. We have to diagnose. Yes, you have headaches. Here's how many headaches you're having. Here's the nature, the type, what makes them worse, what makes them better. This would be a good headache treatment for you. And it's not a CVID custom headache treatment. It's a FDA approved treatment for migraine, right? And so they do work. So it's this really, you know, again, avoiding blaming everything on the CVID and not just treating some easy symptoms, right? So it's a mix.
0: Registration is now open for the 2023 PI Conference, which will be held on June 22nd and 23rd, 2023. This virtual event, Navigating Your PI Journey, will take a comprehensive look at PI in three tracks, skimming the surface for the newly diagnosed, deep dives for those looking for more in-depth scientific explanations, and rare of the rare, which will give information on the rarest of diagnoses. To register, visit primaryimmune.org conference. You can also click the link in the show's description. If you're listening to this episode after the event, don't worry, you can still find the sessions on the IDF YouTube channel.
1: how have your immunology and, uh, and or neuroimmunology colleagues responded to your study results? Has anyone now referred PI patients to you as the neurologist?
2: <laughs> well, so I do. So my, again, I'm that specialist that self-loathing here, but um, we're trying to build up our autoimmune neurology, but it's it's a wait. There's a national shortage of neurologists, just like there are many other specialties. So I we triage our clinic to make sure, because it's an autoimmune neurology clinic, very specialized normally, um, and so if it's, if, if I get a referral from one of my immunology colleagues and they say patient with uncontrolled migraines, I will, but, but they have an immunologist, right. Who sent me, who's treating their cbid I will often send them right to our migraine specialists and say, okay, take a crack at them. Anything you're worried about here, let me know. Um, if it's not, you know, and so we do that so that patients aren't sitting on wait lists forever. Um, so, so it's, it's sort of a complex, but, um, complex kind of referral pattern to get patients to the right place. Um, because I don't sort of uh have the lock on neurology expertise by any means. And in some cases I'm really not who our patients need, like the, the dysautonomia case, for example, if I see that, if, if someone says patient has CVID and is is syncable all day long, right, then I send them right to 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 the autonomic group. Um, so it, it again depends um, on the question being asked on the symptoms that are there. If the question is, hey, like they have white spots on their brain, right? That's more than neuroimmunology neurology or, or hey, I think they have a superimposed antibody mediated condition like MoGAD or something. Those are where we immediately scoop them up. But it's, it, you know, we have a, we're fortunate to have a big neurology department. Um, and so we try to get people to the exact expertise based on their symptoms and it's different for everyone. Um, And the way that I do that, which is not feasible for many people, is I actually triage referrals, which is an enormous undertaking of time that does not reimburse um, and is sort of just something I do at night. But um, I think it saves so much aggravation for the patients, like showing up at the wrong neurologist who's like, I have no idea how to, right? So that's that's what we do in academics. Um, We can can sort of do that, and so we've we choose to do that, and I have one of our younger faculty helping me triage now,
3: too, because the volume is so great. Wonderful.
1: Thank you. All right. Next question. Is there a way we can participate in your survey or study to further your CVID slash PI connections via the
2: IDF? Well, I guess that's the question. Like, what do we need to do next? So we did a survey. I mean, maybe a next step is um, a multi-institution one, right? Usually in science, what you do is if you publish one thing, then you hope that someone at a different center replicates it, right? So maybe that is the next thing that needs to be done. The paper was just published in early 2023, so it's not been out there that much. Um, so, um, or multi-center, that could be something. Again, I'm I'm not, right? This is immune deficiency, <laughs> like, is that something we could do? Should we Should we put this out? I don't know, you know, that's, I'm not sure what the next steps are. That's what I want to know. Like, does this resonate? Is this resonating with people on a call? Like, is everybody saying, yes, I have neurosymptoms. I, you know, right now I ne- we need external validation because it was a single center study. And I was, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was shocked by, I knew there would be some, right. I had this hunch because I was seeing it, but the amount um, and the effect on quality of life um, was, was a bit of a shocker, I think, to all of us. Um, and a wake-up call. So is that just at
3: Utah? Uh, You know, there's only one way to find out.
1: Thank you, Dr. Clardy. All right, next question. Um, This individual says, great presentation. I have developed about 80% of the symptoms in your questionnaire. Cognitive and memory issues have become an issue for me. Um, I have an upcoming neurological eval in June. What is the most important thing I can tell the physician?
2: Don't say my name. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> um, yeah, it's a great question, right? It's a fixed finite time in a neurologic appointment. So this is where the list is gonna come in, I would say. And so which ones are affecting your quality of life the most? Um, if you're really concerned, cognition, you mentioned cognition, if that's the number one concern, um, there are easy measures that we can do as neurologists. So if you say, I am concerned that I have um, poor cognition um, out of proportion to what I should for my age, and it's interfering with my ability to function, most neurologists will then ask you a similar sort of barrage of questions, like, okay, give me an example. Um, because sometimes we just get folks in who, are, who maybe have dementia in the family and they're anxious. And so they'll say, oh, I misplaced my keys once a week, in which case we're like, anything else? And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, that's normal. We all do that. (laughs) You know, this is where neurology expertise comes in. Um, And so that, you know, but, but then sometimes people come in and say like, no, five times a day, I walk into a room and I have no idea why I'm there. I left the oven on. I was out driving on a route I'm used to and I got lost, right? Then we kind of ding ding ding, right? So, so concrete examples are invaluable, as is if you have, if you can write an advocate, you know, to say, yeah, like she's not doing okay. Um, and, and give concrete examples. So we can do a very quick bedside screen. Um, we do things very commonly called either the mini mental status or the MOCA, which stands for the Montreal cognitive assessment. We can do those in office, right? So if you start saying things and we go, oh, this is not just, I'm anxious um, about my memory for some reason, this is, I don't expect this for this person at this age with this level of education, we can do those screens. That's the first step. If you screen grossly abnormal on those, the next step is usually an in-depth neuropsychological evaluation, which is usually a two to three hour, I call the torture test because they hone in on your weaknesses and they fire in on them to really characterize them well. So no one walks out of a neuropsych evaluation feeling very smart, but it really helps us characterize which pathways and areas of functioning are affected. So that's, you know, so that's like an example of a pathway for what we do, but everything we do in neurology is pretty algorithmic, right? Or if you say headaches, it's going to be those questions I alluded to earlier. How many headache days a month? What time of day? Where in your head does it hurt? What triggers it? What makes it better? right? Light, sound, you know, all of those things. Do you wake up with a headache in the morning when you didn't go to bed with one at night, right? So we're very algorithmic. And so you need to prioritize top concerns, um, appreciate that you might not get through all of them, because again, right, again, it's overwhelming Um, the, the amount of neurologic involvements that some CVID patients have, and so you can't get through it all. And so that's why I'm saying pick those top three that are really affecting your quality of life, and go after those. Um, print out my, you know, paper maybe, right? If it because, like I told you, this is not something we're taught about. That's why I had to learn from some generous colleagues. Print the paper out and be like, I, you know, I'm kind of afraid. This is where I'm at, and and I think we're just beginning to understand, and and. It sounds like sometimes these are primary neurologic things, but often secondary. So can you help me manage these because they're affecting
3: my ability to function?
1: Wonderful, thank you. Um, And I know two questions back, I think you were asking, is this resonating with folks? Um, So I just wanted to read um, a comment that someone submitted because it definitely is. Um, This individual said, I could cry listening to you because I feel so validated right now. Most doctors have given up on me and lately I've been giving up on me too. So just wanted to share that. It is definitely resonating with our community and thank you to whoever shared that with us. That's really nice. Um, all right, next question. This individual wants can to know- Can I say something
2: about the comment? Yeah, I will yeah, say- Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, when you're doc, Um, and this this is not making excuses for docs, but I do think it helps to break things down for them. Um, um, Because I know when, like, if I get ill, right? And and people are like, how are you doing? And I just kind of, oh, like all the things, right? All the things. Um, Maybe one fault of of Western medicine, how we're trained or the system where we only have so many minutes, um, if you can focus it for docs. When you come in with a diagnosis like CBID, a lot of people don't know, but they know it's a thing and it sounds complicated and the immune system's involved. And a lot of doctors, we get intimidated, right? We're like, oh, I'm not smart enough to like help with that, right? Meanwhile, you've been waiting for this appointment forever. And you're like, oh, right, that whole, okay, you gang up on me, right? Or you think I'm crazy or whatever, right? So get, that's where the list and the advocate help right? So you are already there. You're not feeling well. You wouldn't be going to the doctor in the first place. Bring with you someone if you can. Neighbor, somebody who's kind of there and less emotionally involved, right? Who can advocate and you have your list. So you stay focused. You got your list on your phone or your piece of paper. Can you help me with this today? You know, can you help me with this? And, And again, it can't, the list cannot be 20 items long, again, you're going to see the doctor over there going, oh my God, I want to, but I can't, I can't, like I, there's not enough time. I, you know, if I, if I try to fix the first five things, it might interfere with the next five things. And, and there's could be interactions, right. So, so focus, right. I hate to say, but the best patients I always view as, as managing me, they're like project managers. So they're like, okay, we need to address number one here. What's your plan. Right. And they're very polite about it, but I, I, you know, I love it. I'm like, whoa, Person's a project manager, or an engineer, or something. <laughs> you can tell that is the best to just focus in advance when you're in a better place, not in the pressure cooker of a 45 minute or 30 minute appointment to do that. So don't give up, but but make it an incremental. Okay, here's what we need to do first, right? And and if you're not being heard, then you do go to the next. Find your
3: team. IDF can help you with that.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Um, next question. When should we see a neurologist if we have the top three symptoms he mentioned?
2: I mean, I think that question becomes, are they bothering you? Are they interfering with life, right? Um, and And can you, you know, you know you I mean, that's the thing. The patients always have the answers. Sometimes, we can help by asking a question. And so you connect the two things, but, but the patients know, um, you know, what's driving it. it is, you know, think about it. Did I always have this symptom or did this symptom show it about at a point in time, right? Um, is the symptom worse when I do certain things? And then the real question is, right, you know, this medicine's expensive in this country. So what, you know, the neurologic symptoms are there. I, I think I hear you saying, yes, that's, that's your experience. Are they the most bothersome things for you right now, right? Or is it like skin or is it whatever? Um, because we do, we have to, we get doctor fatigue, we get medical system, medical system fatigue, right? So um, if you have them, are, are they like in your top three things that are affecting quality of life? That's what I always just refocus. so okay, what's the number one thing? You go to bed at night and you're like, if I just didn't have this going on, that's where you go first. That's the specialist you go to. That's where you're like, I need you to treat this. Yes, I have CBID. Realize that may be influencing all of it. Um, sometimes you have to say to the doctor, what if I didn't have CBID? How would you treat this? Right? So you may need to separate it for them and then also bring them back and say, do you think it could be related? Right? But you need to say, what do you do usually to treat this? And and what I really like to tell people If you feel like you're not getting it, or you feel like sometimes doctors are constrained in opinions because there's no evidence. Well, you know this, there's not a ton of evidence-based medicine in how to manage the other stuff in CVID. So a way that you sort of give someone permission to start being creative is to say, look, I know there's no easy answers here. What would you do if this was your family? What if I was your mom? What if I was your sister? What if I was your daughter? What would you tell me to do? that gives the doctor permission to level with you right so i love that question and 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 i think it's powerful and it allows us to to say okay like i'm not sure i don't have data here or whatever but yeah if you were my sister i'd tell you to go do this that's the first thing i would try and all of a sudden you sometimes get a different answer and you're like well, why do you say that in the first place the reason is because It may not be traditional, it may not sort of be the doctrine in medicine, there may be nothing to sort of support it, but you're getting at their gut, um, which we're kind of told that's not necessarily the right thing to do, right? So that's another, keep that one in your back pocket when you're in those frustrating appointments, just sort of cut to the chase, what would you do if this was your family? Thanks, Dr. Clardy. Um, and we have a bunch more people
1: commenting, yes, it resonates, it resonates big time. So I just wanted to share that. Um, I don't know if
2: I'm like, I don't know how to feel about <laughs> it. I that. think it's good. I think
1: it's good. I mean, it's good and bad, but I think people are hearing this and it's making them feel seen. And that's why we're here.
2: So I will keep telling the neurologist they need to know. It's what at least take away from that. And the, and the immunologist too, right?
1: Thank you. All right, we have about 10 more minutes, so we're gonna try to get through some more of these. Um, I know Dr. Clardy is a hard stop right at 8.30, so we'll do questions right up till then, and then we'll just do our closeout couple of slides. Um, All right, next question. Um, You mentioned that you check CVID patients who show white spots on their brain MRI. Can you elaborate as to what the white spots are a sign of? I've been told it's a part of normal aging and that they are benign.
2: So it sounds like you've seen a neurologist. And so I would take that, right? That that sounds like solid medical advice. Um, I, I generically say white spots, right? Um, but and hold on one second. Just let me look at that page. Okay. Um, so um, to a neurologist, a white spot is not a white spot, is not a white spot, right? So that's part of our training. You will notice most neurologists um, read their own MRIs, right? Even though we have a radiologist officially signing off on them um, the question earlier about ADEM, those are dramatic across the room, taking up a big part of the MRI, the brain, you can't miss them kind of things versus, um, everyone as they age is sort of entitled to get a few nondescript, um, small, we, the technical term is white sort of hyperintensities. That's what they're called on an MRI. Uh, Migriners are entitled to have them, right? So example, I get migraine headaches. So I'm sure that I have a few, hyperintensities, right? But again, it's the the clinical context. So when you go into the neurologist, they're going to ask you some questions. They're going to look at the location of those hyperintensities, the size, whether or not they enhance with contrast. um, And they're going to put all of that together to say, you're okay, you're fine. Or sometimes they'll say, actually, you have a few extra for your age. Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have sleep apnea? Do you have migraines? Have you ever, right? So they will begin a line of questioning based on the appearance and location and size of any hyperintensities they see on the MRI of the brain. But I will tell you, it's, it's much more the exception for me to actually see an MRI where someone doesn't have a few small white hyperintensities, but it really comes down to, are they cortical? Are they subcortical? Are they only on one side? Are they, you know, so many factors. And this is where, um, you know, the, the neurologist will bring it up, they will look at it, and this is what we are trained in. This is what we're good at. We may not be experts in CVID, <laughs> but um, neurology training teaches us to look at MRIs to identify if a hyperintensity is a small lacuna stroke, if it is demyelinating, if it is just um, normal aging, if you will, meaning the smallest little blood vessels might close off a little bit, and boom, you get a little tiny hyperintensity. So, so that's... Um, that is um, a good question for a neurologist. And, and yes, you will see primary care docs appropriately so, not comfortable answering that. So if they get an MRI report that says, oh, some mild white hyperintensities, or they use these terms like maybe out of proportion for age. And, and we start panicking when we see that, but then you go to the neurologist, right? And they're like, no, it's fine, right? So um, yeah, that's the there's a huge spectrum, I guess, is the short answer. And And so if you had a trusted person look this over and say that I would I would go with it
1: thank you all right next question I'm going to combine a few that folks have asked Um, we have a couple of individuals asking if you know of any association between ADD and ADHD and CVID
3: Mm. Mm.
2: (laughs) this one would be quite challenging I think to 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 sort out Um, just because you have CVID, which you arrive at by many, many different pathways to the common endpoint, same thing with ADD and ADHD. Um, We obviously also live in a society where these are diagnosed far more than they used to be. And unlike CVID, where there's pretty clear criteria, um, ADD, ADHD, um, so I don't know. I really don't know. And I think it's going to be a very hard question for anyone to answer, Um, especially, um, you know, if you just take certain aspects, like, is it trouble focusing? Well, sometimes you can have trouble focusing if you didn't sleep well, right? If you didn't oxygenate well, um, if, you know, right. So, so it gets tricky. Um, And, and, so, so I, I have not seen literature on that. And I think um, if, if there isn't literature, it's for good reason, right? It would be a hard thing to study. Um, yeah, again, it may come down to if there's a significant component of ADD and ADHD, one of the things we do is make sure that we've controlled for all the easy, what we call low-hanging fruit in medicine, right? Like again, make sure you don't have sleep apnea, all those kinds of things. If, that is your, if that's your number one on your list for things affecting quality of life, then I think, yeah, you pursue um, treatment, symptomatic treatment while making sure that there's not things aggravating it,
3: right? Thank you.
1: All right, next question. This individual wants to know, how can the chronic neurologic pain be managed safely as this is a huge cause for decrease in quality of life?
2: Yeah. So, so neuropathic pain, um, neurologists are decent, decent at managing, right? This is in our wheelhouse. Um, and I will say, if you already have a CVID diagnosis, we're already following your immunoglobulins. So how, how I alluded to the fact that like some of the meds we use for neuropathic pain can sometimes lower that immunoglobulins. Well, we're already watching them. So <laughs> maybe you just need a smidge more. Um, so, so, so I wouldn't worry about that. Like I do worry of somebody who comes in to me on high dose gabapentin for neuropathic pain. And then I see a low IgG and I go, oh, can't sort this out very well now. Um, so, so when you come in, maybe that's, there you go. There's a silver lining. If you're coming in with the CVIT diagnosis, yeah, you can just go to a neurologist and they're going to ask you questions about the nature of the neuropathic pain. They're going to make sure they have a sense of what's driving that neuropathic pain. Is it a peripheral neuropathy? Is it uh, lumbar degeneration? Is it, you know. And there's sort of myriad causes these we alluded to earlier, like diabetic neuropathy or any of the other causes. Um, there are autoimmune causes too. So once they sort that out and sort of feel like they have a sense um, that there isn't something that should be etiology specific they're targeting, we have just a lot of medications really um, and for neuropathic pain, including topicals um, and and various combinations. So we will often really kind of put together a hybrid plan um, for how to treat neuropathic pain Um, for the most severe of our patients. We will often bring in our pain management docs too, who can do for refractory pain, things like IV, lidocaine, IV, ketamine, things like that. Um, So, so we are, a neurologist is pretty well equipped to begin to address that um, and has multiple tiers of strategies. Um, There are occasionally, for example, in my world, I see some severe spinal cord, Um, uh, inflammatory injuries, sometimes those really don't heal well. And so I work very closely with pain management, um, where I give the oral medications, the topical medications, the lifestyle, the sort of coping strategy things, and they will um, often layer in some of the sort of fancy things that need monitoring
3: and special fellowship training.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, All right. I think we probably have time for one and a half more questions. So this is gonna be our last long one. Um, This individual asks, what would you tell a patient if they have seen a vast majority of specialists and spent a few years back and forth to other states? They've brought that list of questions you mentioned with them. They've brought an advocate with them. At this point, would you recommend a team of specialists that can
2: help? Well, I think it's very important to have a team of docs when you have CBID, right? Because as you all know, it affects different organ systems for different people. Um, you know, and I will say like, for example, when I came here as an attending, it was a new institution to me. It took me a couple of years to figure out who in each department was the right specialist, you know? Um, and so I think that's sort of what you need to do as well. Um, some general recommendations, it helps to stay all in one medical system. Again, broken system, we're in here, but when I have a patient come in and they have seen um, five different docs at five different practices in town, none of whom share the same medical record. That's fine. As long as they have taken the time to print out every single note have every single digital MRI for me. And, you know, and that's a lot of onus on a patient who's suffering, um, and not feeling well. Right. So, so, um, sometimes that's what it takes, right? Sometimes you're fortunate. You can get everybody good enough in one system. I appreciate that you can. And so that's when I sit with the patients and I'm like, all right, here's the talk broken medical system. I will send my letter out to your docs. Who knows if it'll get there. Um, but more of this is going to fall to you to get you the ideal team. And that's when you come with your binder, right? You got to maintain the binder the dreaded binder, and it gets thicker and thicker. Um, But what that does then is it allows each doctor to efficiently care for you Um, in this healthcare system, which really truly has gone into crisis after COVID. We have lost a ton of doctors. More importantly than that, we cannot employ nurses or medical assistants. So I cannot ask my staff to call every office and get the records, they will quit. And then no one will be there. Um, we just don't have enough, right? So it breaks my heart. But but if you're going to assemble a team outside of a single medical system, that is what needs to happen. Um, and and that's homework and that's extra, but it will improve your care by leaps and bounds. Um, otherwise, yeah, I think you, you got to keep looking for your team. And it does usually take a team. You need that one primary care doc um, who is. Um, a straight clinician, right? The problem with us specialists is a lot of us are researchers. So for example, I'm in my clinic one day a week at at the university location. So I I tell everybody, okay, I can help you get a primary care doc in our system and here's my top five picks, right? But you need someone who can get you the antibiotic because you're gonna need it. If, If you get sick on Wednesday and I'm not back checking messages until the next Tuesday, you could be in the hospital by then, right? So we identify that point person. And then, you know, if it's a pulmonology, you know, pulmonary symptoms are prominent person, you know. Um, and so once you find a doc, you like guy, this is another sort of tip, ask them who joins the team, right? Because they'll probably have opinions. Say, oh, this person's very good in cardiology. Let's, let's do that right? And that can help you build your network sometimes too. So sometimes I have people come into a neurology clinic and I send out five referrals and I'm like, I am so sorry, this is going to be overwhelming. More often than not, the patient's like, nope, I'll do them one at a time as I can, but yes, please put them all in, right? As you know, to kind of build it out. And it's usually the CBID patients where I do, (laughs) they'll come in, just move to the area. And I'm like, oh, you haven't had an EKG. You haven't seen anyone for your lungs. Oh goodness. What's that rash? Those are just kind of strategies to do it. Um, One upside of the pandemic is that many of us have more ready ability to do um, video visits. So once, for example, if I'm just managing migraine and I know that you had a normal neurologic exam when you were in last time, I'm comfortable doing follow-up visits by video and and appreciating that a lot of what we're doing is organizing and and ordering lab tests and, and sort of that kind of management work. So that can be helpful too. And you can, a lot of my patients will just step out of work. And so it's, you know, um, it's not a whole day lost traveling to and fro. It's just 45 minutes. I'm going to take my lunch for this appointment. They step into their car. We do these visits anywhere. You can get a signal, right? And, and some privacy. So that's another silver lining. we lost a ton of people in the field, but at least we have a little more flexibility. <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to give you some tips. I hope they're helpful.
1: I think they definitely are, and I know you have to jump, Dr. Clardy. So, real quick before, um, where can folks find your paper? Oh,
2: it is. Um, it's. If it, I think actually, I just checked this. If you Google like Clarity, my last name C-L-A-R-D-Y, and C-V-I-D, I think it comes up. Um, it is published in a neurology um, journal that's targeted to neuroimmunologists. So the journal is a long name. It's called Neurology colon. Neuroimmunology and neuroinflammation, right? So it's a journal they made just for stuff like this, but it's a mouthful. Um, but yeah, I think if you just Google Clarity CBID, right? Because I'm no expert, and there's just really this sort of thing for me. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. Well, I'm sure everyone is going to go check out your paper. I know I'm going to, um, and we're really excited to see what more comes of your research. It's, it's much needed and obviously very impactful for our community. So thank you so much.
2: Well, thanks um, for letting
1: us do it. Thanks for letting a neurologist talk. <laughs> appreciate it. We loved having you, thank you so much. Um, So we're just gonna gonna close out and just go through my last couple of slides. I know you have someone you need to go pick up. So if you need to go, that's totally fine. But we are so appreciative of your time and your expertise this evening. This was incredible. And I couldn't get through everyone's comments telling you how much this resonated and how much they appreciated it, but countless, countless comments from people. So thank you so much, Dr.
2: Clardy. Thank you, thanks, take care.
0: This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like this show and want to learn more, please subscribe so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically and leave a review so that others may find this show as well. To learn more about PI and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. If you have a question you'd like answered, visit primaryimmune.org askidf ask IDF. Thanks for tuning in.